This episode of For the Love with Jen Hatmaker is brought to you by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors. They can be big, difficult, even scary life things, and also small inconveniences that add up day after day. The thing is, when we keep them all bottled up on the inside and just try to grin and bear it, it can start to affect us and the people around us negatively. We may even isolate ourselves, which makes it even worse. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. This was the case for me when I was at the highest stress level in my life, where the stress was even having physical consequences for me. Therapy was a huge part of my healing journey to learn how to manage the stress. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash for the love today and get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash for the love. Have you ever noticed how celebrities have brighter, whiter looking eyes? Their makeup artists have a little secret in their kit. Lumify Redness Reliever Eye Drops. You guys, I use these every single day. Lumify dramatically reduces redness in just one minute. It literally happens right before your eyes to help them look brighter, whiter, and more awake for up to eight hours. No wonder it is so loved by influencers, celebrities, and makeup artists and has over 6,000 five-star reviews on Amazon. Lumify is also the number one eye doctor recommended redness reliever eye drop and it's FDA approved. No bleach, no dyes. Plus it's made by the eye care experts at Bausch & Lomb. So whether you're on set, on a date, or running on just a few hours of sleep, you can have eyes that look brighter and whiter with Lumify eye drops. And when you try it, you'll see that it is what your eyes have been looking for. So check out lumifyeyes.com to learn more. Hey guys, welcome back to the Jen Hatmaker Book Club Podcast. If you are listening to this episode over on our regular For the Love feed, welcome. This is a little bit about what we do in the Jen Hatmaker Book Club, which among a million other awesome things includes a dedicated interview with our author that month in which we get to ask our personal questions and tell her our response to her writing. And it is just one of our favorite things inside book club. We would love to have you join us, by the way. You can find out all the details at jenhatmakerbookclub.com. So everybody get excited. I can't wait to introduce you to Carrie Marr, the brilliant author of our latest book club pick, The Paris Bookseller. So Carrie is something of a rising star in the literary world. She's known for really captivating historical fiction. That's her deal. She's the author of The Kennedy Debutante and The Girl in White Gloves, which have both been praised for their historical detail, their complex characters, obviously born out of real life. Now, in The Paris Bookseller, Harry takes us to post-World War I Paris, mostly Paris in the 1920s, where she brings to life for us Sylvia Beach. So Sylvia was the founder, the owner of the famous bookstore, Shakespeare and Company. 
And so the Paris bookseller is a tribute to a lot of things. The power of literature, the strength of women. It is such a fascinating read. I loved it. It is beautifully written. So interesting. So many layers upon layers of historical fact that she brings to life with some fictional details. She brings us Ernest Hemingway and James Joyce, and we explore sexual identity and the place of women, and it's packed. It's layer upon layer upon layer. It is so wonderful. So I cannot wait for you to join me in conversation with Carrie about her absolutely wonderful book. Enjoy. Carrie, hi. I am so happy to see your face, to meet you in person, sort of. I just love you. I love your work. I'm thrilled that you're here. Thanks for making time. Oh, I, of course, I am also thrilled to be here with you. Also love your work. This is a mutual admiration society. Love it. (laughs) Who else loves your work is book club. You know, this is our selection for the month. Your book is, is our selection for the Paris bookseller. And it's so fun. I have so many people over in book club who have been to the bookstore and they're like posting their pictures when they were on vacation. And it's just really spurred on so much interesting dialogue and talk about the era and like sexual identity. I mean, all the things that you unpacked, which we'll get to it, but we're not even at the halfway mark of the month and we are just popping off over in our book club about how much we are enjoying the story. So let's just start here. Well, let me actually roll it back. One quick question. Can you just, just in case, People missed it or they don't know. Just sort of tell us this is where you are in the world and here's who you people are and here's your deal. You know what I mean? Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So I live outside of Boston in one of the Western suburbs of Boston. If people know that area, I live in a town called Weston, very close to like Wellesley. Wellesley is more famous. But I always identify as a California girl. I was born and mostly raised in California. And like, it's really, you can take the girl out of California, but you cannot take California out of the girl. So I always put that caveat, even though I have now lived most of my life on the East Coast. Right, totally. But, you know, we're counting down the days till my daughter graduates from high school. And then I can, you know, go back to the the other side of it. The country. Ah, are you looking at an impending move? You want to go back no, to your roots? No, I mean, we're talking, this is six years from now. So it's a long time. Oh, yeah. Got it. No, listen, this is a great place to be. I'm joking. Boston is an amazing city. You know, we've got world-class museums. We, within an hour's drive, you know, there's like, you know, mountains and more museums and, and the Tanglewood Music Festival. That's actually two hours drive, but there's beaches galore. It's really a fabulous place to be. So that's where I am. I've got one daughter who's in sixth grade, Central Strength. I also have a lovely, fluffy, needy Labradoodle who is like at his feet right now, who I hope he doesn't decide to wind up a storm, but he may say hi at some point. He will not be the first dog on this show. So the, the dogs like to be where the people are. That's right. I actually find pet appearances on Zoom charming. (laughs) 100% same. It's not a dog, but I live in an old timey house right by railroad tracks, like a little old timey downtown, old fashioned town. So there are trains that go by every 10 minutes. And I had to eventually tell my listeners, I need you to consider this charming. I can't stop every show for a train. We'd, We'd never get through one. And so now that's the charming soundtrack. 
if you listen to me ever record anything. So I get it. Dogs included. Yep. Yep. So Uh that's me. Okay. That's you. I love the Paris bookseller. Can you tell us, let's just go like the 30,000 foot view. Obviously this was an inspired subject. I mean, you didn't just pull this out of thin air. Like it, it's so specific. It's so historical. Can you just talk a little bit about its origin story? Yeah. So in some ways, it's amazing to me that it took so long for me to come to this subject. You know, I have two previous historical novels, but I've been carrying this story around in my heart and mind for my entire adult life. When I was in college, I was a starry-eyed English major who dreamed of being a writer one day, and my favorite period were the 1920s, especially the expat writers, you know, all the famous writers, right? Yeah, Scott Fitzgerald, Woodstein. You got them all in there. Right, they, right. They all go over there. They all go over and they either live in Paris or do an extended stay. And I was just sort of captivated by this. And you know those wonderful bargain book bins in front of college bookstores where you can buy sure do. Be able to buy a book for 75 cents. Maybe it's gone up to a dollar fifty. This is a long time ago. So anyway, I'm like rummaging around in those one Saturday and like I pluck out a book that's called Shakespeare and Company by Sylvia Beach. I basically turn it over and it says Paris in the 20s and I like sold. (laughs) So I bring it home. I read it. And it's Sylvia's own memoir of her time running Shakespeare and Company in Paris in the 1920s and 30s. And I, I was completely captivated, sucked in, and thought it was fabulous. And then I closed the book and, you know, calendar pages fall off the wall, like decades go by. And, you know, here I am. I, I've written these two other historical novels. And I'm like, who am I going to write about next? And I very quickly realized that Sylvia Beach... You know, I quickly like, of course, Google her. And I'm like, has anyone else written this novel? And amazingly, no one has. She is, I think until this book, has been sort of famous for being the cameo who kind of walks walks off in the lives of these other more more famous male writers female writers. But really, you know, her her store and her story is a work of art in its own right. And I was so thrilled and honored and like humbled that I got to write this novel. Uh, I know what you mean when you just read a book and it just lodges somewhere like deep in your soul and you can't quit thinking about the person or the character or the story or the place. And I love that you hung on to this one. It was worth the wait for sure. Let me roll back one more question because I find this so interesting. You're such an interesting combination of both a novelist. So you've got this writing side of you, this English major side of you, but obviously you've chosen to write in a deeply historical context. I mean, you, you're picking very specific types of stories, very located in real time and place. And what's your deal with history? This is somebody who loves history too. You can't understand how much you are marrying my two favorite things, which is good writing and history. And so... That's a choice because now you're bound. You're bound by some facts. You're bound by the original calendar. Like you're bound in some way to the actual story. So I'd like to kind of hear you talk about that a little bit. Oh my God, Jen, this could be a whole hour long conversation. Oh, good. Oh, let's go. Okay. So I don't have a perfectly organized answer to this. It doesn't matter. This isn't a perfectly organized podcast. So, (laughs) so, you know, the first thing that comes to mind is. I started out as a history major in college, became an English major, but actually I wound up minoring in art history. Now stay with me. 
I am. I loved art history. I sort of discovered it too late in my units taking undergraduate game to double major, but I would have if I could have. And the reason I loved art history was because the way it was taught at UC Berkeley, where I was an undergrad, it was historically taught. And so if you were to look at a big famous painting, like a French 19th century history painting, Delacroix's Liberty Leaving the People, in order to truly understand that painting, you had to kind of understand the cultural, social, political, literary moment from which it emerged. Now, when I first sat in that classroom listening to this, like, British professor with the most wonderful accent talking about this painting, I was like, I am in over my head. But I really enjoyed the challenge of really learning how to do that and of how to like take a bunch of pieces and put them together to understand something bigger than the pieces. The the whole is more than the sum of its parts, right? And I feel like that's what I get to do with historical fiction. I get to do a lot of learning. I, You know, the research part of writing historical fiction is just as exciting to me as the writing part in some ways. In some ways it's more. Anne Patchett has this, I'm going to very much paraphrase her, but she's like, the, the best part about writing the best stage with your novel is before you've written a word because it just exists in your mind as this glowing beautiful thing. And so while I'm doing the research, the book is still ex- existing. I'm learning all this stuff and the book is existing in my mind as bad, you know, this, yeah. this thing. It's a wonderful it's time to be alive. Right. Your, yeah, exactly. your award-winning novel hasn't been started yet, but it is going to be good. Uh-huh. Yeah, exactly. So, so I mean, that's that's a big part of the reason why I am drawn to historical subjects. It's just sort of, I think it's always kind of been in my DNA. And, you know, knowing, like reflecting back on that, you know, student-y learning time in my young adulthood, it's kind of unbelievable to me, again, kind of like the Sylvia Beach subject, that it took me so long to figure out I should write historical fiction. I mean, I read, have you read The Paris Wife by Paula McLean? Yes. Okay, so I read that as a new mother in like a new mother's book club when it first came out. And I read it and I was like, this is amazing. You mean like you could do this with fiction? And I had no idea at the time that I would write books like that someday. At the time, I mean, I have five unpublished novels, Jen Hatmaker. Whoa, I'm gonna put a pin in that to discuss in a minute. I have been writing a long time and I was writing, I was at that time when I read The Paris Wife, I was writing young adult novels, which were never published. But, you know, I, when I sort of stumbled on my first historical subject in Kathleen Kennedy, I thought that was the first time it dawned, I kind of put the pieces together and I was like, oh, maybe I could write a Paris Wife type of book about this person, Kathleen Kennedy. It's amazing how much I learned about writing fiction from writing the truth. Oh, interesting. Because with, with, without any spoilers, some really terrible things happened to Kathleen Kennedy in her life. That if she had been a character I had made up from whole cloth, it never would have even occurred to me to do the things to her that life actually did. I had to do them to her. I, I had to represent that on the page. And it turns out that the truth, that like real life, the stuff you can barely make up, is very compelling. So learning to do that taught me a lot about how to write fiction. That makes so. I mean, there's a reason they say truth is stranger than fiction. I mean, it really can expand your imagination. And again, when you're bound to it, now you really have to parse it out as a writer. 
And so I can see that being completely true of your work. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Guys, it's already allergy season in Texas. My yard is in full bloom and all the things are in the air. So I decided allergies will not win this year. So I tried Astapro. It has improved my nasal allergy symptoms and it's faster, bro. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It is the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription strength, indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. So get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can Astapro and go, you guys, today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Use as directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Astapro and go. Let's talk a little bit more about the research part before you've ever like put pen to paper. Obviously, particularly with the Paris bookseller, which... What a horrible place to have to investigate for you, for you. I always laugh when a novelist like sets her story in like Santorini or I'm like, sure, of course, I'd pick that. I would pick that too. Tell us a little bit about what that looked like as you, I mean, you really just had the bare bones of her story. I mean, you were, you were going to have to hang a lot of meat on it before you were ready to write this. So what did that look like? Well, so in that same vein, I got to basically spend the pandemic in my imagination, or I actually, I call it my time machine, in my time machine in Paris in the 20s. So it was a really lovely place to go when all of the world was falling apart. So that was great. Totally. Yeah. But I was very lucky. I did actually get to go to Paris or in the summer of 2019 before apart. So, and I, I had been to Paris before, but it had been like 20 years. So in addition to the enormous amount of reading I did for this novel, I think, so there's really two answers to this question. One is I revisited some reading that I had done before. Like I dipped back into A Movable Feast by Ernest Hemingway, which I had read also in college, but I sort of dipped back into it. And then I read a great deal of nonfiction that I had not read before. You know, there's there's a great biography of Sylvia Beach. There's a couple of really excellent books about the trial of Ulysses. We haven't gotten into that yet, but that's an important part of this novel. So I did a lot of nonfiction reading for sort of backstory. But then I did, I got to go to Paris and this is a really fun story. So, you know, when you're on, I was like looking on Airbnb. I knew I wanted to stay. I was I had a week to stay in this neighborhood. So I, I really wanted to stay kind of, you know, in the fifth arrondissement, but, and, and I had this friend from London who was going to come stay with me for part of the time. So I'm looking for like two bedroom apartments, like despairing of ever finding anything. Finally, the algorithm in Airbnb suggests a place called James Joyce flat. Well, I was like, no, that just can't be true. And so I wound up corresponding with the owner of the flat. It was out of my price range, but he lowered his price for me. And I got to really, I mean, you told him the whole story. I would too. I'd be like, look, yes. I, yeah, I'm uh-huh. like, I'm writing this novel. I can't uh-huh. afford to stay there. Could I come see it? It did turn out that nobody really knows which apartment it was in the building. But I did, at least, I got to stay essentially in the building where James That's Joyce and spent the summer of 1921. It's really, oh, man. 
So really, and then when I woke up the morning, I, I shook off my jet lag. I walked up the street and there was one of those plaques in, on the wall, on the building that says, this is where Ernest Hemingway first lived. He arrived in Paris. Wow. So I was in it. I mean, that is so like meta. Like that's just meta. how it was meant to be. Like you were literally, what was the neighborhood like? Did it, did it come to life for you? Yes. And you know, one of the things, endless times, like more than once a day, I walked from these apartments, this, this neighborhood with the apartments to the place where the original store was. And I walked past this lovely church and, you know, it's a very studenty area. It's, it's right near the Sorbonne and, and some other lycées. So it's full. When I went there in August of 2019, the students were all gone, but I actually went back last May and classes were still in session and it was heaving, heaving with students. So it depends on what time of year you go there. Mm. Um, you know, it's the Latin Quarter the and it's called the Latin Quarter because of the, the students who studied Latin and spoke in Latin, you know, and studied in Latin. So that's why it's called the Latin Quarter. So it's a very studenty area. So when you were over there, what did you experience or see or discover that informed your book? Oh, uh, well, I mean, some of it was just the beauty of Paris, right? Like, you know, it's called the Paris bookseller. And I really wanted the city to kind of be as much of a character totally. as people. So, you know, a lot of what I was doing was just, I know this sounds very woo. I just spent a lot of time like sitting on benches watching the the light move across the, the you know because when we think about Paris we think of its beauty right I really wanted to capture why it was so beautiful and so you know this led me to wonder about all that I'm going to call it white it's really like a grayish cream colored stone that all so many of the Belle Epoque buildings were made of so you know like looking at endless numbers of these buildings led me to kind of look that up and like try to learn a little bit about that and how was I going to represent it on the page I also wanted to see what these distances were like and you know so like I said I walked to the original store location numerous times I also walked to Gertrude Stein's apartment well her she had a few apartments but the one that she was living in during this particular time period. And, you know, it really was, they really did live a very, I'm going to use the word pedestrian, <laughs> not pedestrian life, but like, you know, they just walked around and they just were living as regular French people for the most part. So Americans in Paris. Mm. Let's talk about Sylvia a little bit, because of course we love her. You can't not, you really you did her justice. You did her story justice and you told her story well. And so I would like to hear you talk about your feelings about her and how you approached writing her. Because again, to at least a large degree, you're bound by history. So you, you have to stay as true as possible to the big nuts and bolts of the story while obviously being able to take a lot of liberties like with the soft tissue. That feels a little daunting to me. It's not just your figment of your imagination where you can do whatever you want. Like it's a little daunting to write about a real person, especially one that's been cast as a background character. And so you're bringing her to the forefront of the stage. It's kind of a big deal. So I'd like to hear how that felt and how you went about bringing Sylvia to all of us. 
So again, lots of different ways to answer this. The reading was also super important because that puts exactly like you were talking about the actual pieces in place. And then I, I sort of like to talk about it as well. Okay. So there's this event, right? There's her opening the store and then there's her meeting James Joyce. And then she offers to publish Ulysses when it becomes a banned book. So the connective tissue is I have to think to myself, well, how does she get from this moment to this moment to this moment? Not just physically, right? But in her heart and and mind, right? Like how does she get there? And that's where the fiction part comes in. And, you know, there is an enormous hump I had to get over to put words in her mouth and gosh, to put words in the mouth of like Ernest Hemingway and James Totally. Hero writers. So in some ways, I actually had to get over this hump the first time I did historical fiction, like when I wrote about Kennedy. So, so I like to say that the reason, only reason I was able to do it with the Paris bookseller is because I practiced with the Kennedys first. Totally. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, but I, I spent a lot of time in the research stage of that, that novel, like feeling inadequate, like who am I to write about these people? I'm just some housewife with five unpublished novels in my attic. And two writers from very different writer friends from very different parts of my writing life responded to that comment in almost exactly the same way. They were like, but Carrie, this is your novel, isn't it? That was very liberating to me. So I've kind of carried that through to all of my historical subjects. When I, when I get really like worried about putting words in their mouth, I'm like, okay, Carrie, these are your, this is your Sylvia Beach, your Ernest Hemingway. James Joyce. It's if Jen Hatmaker were to write this that's book, right. it would be different. That's and right. I, that's a tension I've really had to embrace in representing real people and real time periods is that, yes, I want to absolutely do right by them. I want to kind of represent their, the truth of their essence, we'll, we'll say. But I also have to just like cop to the fact and respect the fact that these are my versions of these people. That's They're right. Like, the actual Sylvia Beach is not with us. That's right. It's historical fiction. It's not just historical novel or a historical. Or it's not even a biography. Yeah, right. it's not a biography. Exactly. That's right. Once a writer kind of gets over that hump, it is really fun to write the imaginary connective tissue. It's like I believe you. I'd like to hear what you you think about this. You obviously started with Sylvia. That was that's who captured your imagination back in college. And you kind of pulled that all the way through. But obviously, when you're going to write about her life and her work, you're going to have to add the cast of characters, you know, that made up her life. So I'm curious, as you started piecing together the pieces of her story that you were going to tell, obviously, you had to omit a ton. Who did you enjoy learning about? Like, who who were some of the other characters that you were like, okay, this is fun to read about, or this is something I didn't know, or I had like writing for this particular historical person. Did any of them sort of rise to the top alongside of her? Yeah, well, so two. One, Adrienne, her, you know, life and business partner was wonderful to learn about and research. And also Adrienne's store. So Adrienne's store is and pardon my French, it's La Maison des Amis de Livre, the house of the friends of books. And it's really her store, which she opens in 1915, that inspires Sylvia to write her own. Sylvia like falls in love with the store and the life and ultimately Adrienne herself. And like, that was really fun to get to learn about. And, you know, Adrienne was this kind of big personality, 
she was a, an amazing cook. Oh yeah. I loved those. I loved those little sprinkles of her food all throughout the the story. That was so fun. Uh (laughs) Yeah. Well, so that was fun. And I'm, I am myself something of a foodie. I also love to eat. I'm in a point in my life. I find it difficult to spend a lot of time cooking, but I do enjoy cooking. And so it was fun for me to kind of give those things to her as a personality. The other person, it was a surprise and really fun to write. And he's a small character, but is Ezra Pound. Oh, Ezra yeah. kind of like winds up really on the wrong side of history, you know, in World War II. But at this time, he's just a young man trying to edit these avant-garde literary journals and like bring all the great writers that he knows of in, in England and in New York to Paris. He puts people together. And the other thing that really threw him into relief for me was discovering that he was kind of an amateur carpenter, which is I have him do in the yeah, store. Too. I, I, he fixes the furniture. And sure. that that made him three-dimensional to me in a way that like just rereading his poetry could because that's really who he was, right? He he liked to put things together, even furniture. I didn't know if that was just invented. I didn't know that yeah, was no, born out no, of like that's a real thing. Uh-huh. Yeah. Those no, are the great. things. Those are the kinds of things I love to find out in research. And they're small. They they make the character click for me. I always hope that when I add them into the book, they'll make the, the characters click for readers too. Yeah, well, just adds humanity to them. Like that that informs the way that you write the story. Thanks for sharing that. I'd love to talk about Adrienne. I really love, in general, how you treated the women, that you really explored the way in which they were obviously pushing back against traditional gender roles, even though Paris was more progressive at the time than obviously America or, you know, some of the other parts of the world, of course. I would just love to hear you discuss the women and their sexuality and their identity and these places in the city that were sort of known gathering places, you know, for women to come. And and even just, it was interesting to read everyone else's responses and reactions to the women. And, you know, when we realized this is the 1920s, I found that a very interesting through line that you included. Can you discuss that a little? Yeah. So, you know, this was something I really had to do some specific research around as what was it like to be a queer woman in in 19, the 1920s in general, but in Paris in particular. And so I did some like sort of specific reading about this. And it's this is actually tough to do research on because people weren't really writing <laughs> about it, you know, in outward ways. And in fact, Sylvia, when she wrote her own memoir, the one that I read in college, wrote, wrote it in the 1950s for an American audience. So it is impossible to tell from that memoir that she was romantically involved with. Oh, interesting. I, I did, she I, left I, all of that out? Yes. Well, wow. no, she met Adrienne as a friend with like yeah. a neighboring bookstore, but mm. like there's no, there's no, no, there's no understanding of their romantic relationship. All of that has been written about later by, you know, biographers and historians. So one of the things that I discovered, you know, in my research about, but, and clearly they were living together 
for, you know, more than a decade in Paris, like as a married couple, just as Gertrude Stein and Alice B. Toklas also were. These were accepted couples. There was another American woman who had a very popular salon, art, artist salon. Her name was Natalie Barney, who was, everyone knew she was a lesbian. And in fact, her salon tended toward the sapphic. So she did invite James Joyce from time to time. She would invite other non-sapphic artists and, and writers to her salon as well. So it's a very interesting time. So one of the things I did discover is that same-sex relationships were decriminalized in France from the time of their revolution. And so people were able to kind of live this life in Paris in the 20s in a way that they couldn't in other major metropolitan cities. You know, gay bars and cabarets were all the rage everywhere in the 19th including in New York and Chicago and Berlin. It's just that they were illegal there. <laughs> in general, women would either wear like a three-piece suit, like a monocle, <laughs> or like in their, in their glitziest gown, right? But if you were dressed in the three-piece suit, you would wear a big cloak over it to go there. So you weren't advertising your, your queer identity exactly. But once you got there, you could take the cloak off and everything was fine. Okay. It's a very interesting time. I mean, I hope more research is done about this because it's fascinating. You know, in some ways, the the New York City foils for Sylvia and Adrienne were these two women in New York named Margaret Anderson and Jane Heap, who were the co-editors of this avant-garde literary journal called The Little Review that had been serializing Ulysses since 1918. And it was it was in 19, you know, 20 that they finally you know, as they're publishing this this novel, which is becoming known for potentially obscene material because it treats sex and the body and, and everything. I mean, this is what modernism is about, right? And so they're publishing it. So it comes under the eyes of the New York Society for the Suppression of Vice, the Vice Squad, which is run by John Sumner. So Margaret Anderson and James Heap, they're these editors and a couple in New York, and they come under this, the eyes of the Vice Squad. And they are the ones who are actually arrested for publishing obscene material. They are the ones who stand trial for publishing obscenity in 1921. I think that that's something that I really did not understand until I researched this book. I mean, when we think of a, books that become banned, we think of the writer being the one on trial or the sure. Yeah. But that wasn't the case for this book in 1921. It was the two women publishers of the serialized edition of Ulysses that stood trial and were found guilty of publishing obscenity. So, you know, when we think about the women of this book, both the women in New York and the women in Paris who were doing like the dirty work of modernism, right? Mm. You know, the actual publishing, the standing trial. And, and then Sylvia, once, once Jane and, and Margaret are found guilty of publishing obscenity and all of the <clears throat> male publishers in New York and London pull their offers to publish the, the full novel, it's Sylvia, right, who puts her hand up and says, well, why don't you let me publish this book? So it's women who are putting their fortunes and reputations on the line for these, for this book in particular, but also modernism as the larger pro like literary project. So interesting to learn. I did not know the, the basics of that story until I read your novel. So I found that fascinating and also just 
the way that you put on the page sort of this puritanical American ideology at the time where just Americans just became so square and like so resistant to progress and expansion and they were just it felt like America was just getting shrunk down as I was reading your novel like into this rigid dogmatic sort of cultural ideology and and then there's the women there's the women yeah. like pulling us forward mm-hmm. fascinating yeah, you know again thinking about when I when I wrote it you know during the pandemic and you know the the elections and all yeah. that yeah. The things and the women pulling us forward. And, you know, which isn't to say that we don't have great men who, who do important work in the world. Of course we do. But it was striking to me in researching this book. And I don't think that most people would know the true history of, of all of that. Because when the book is unbanned in the 1930s, it is by a pack of men who unbanned. It's Bennett Cerf at Random House and his lawyer, who's a man, and three set, two sets of judges who write these very important opinions about Ulysses as a work of art, as not as obscene, not as porn, pornographic, but as a work of art. And unfortunately, in the history books, they were the ones who sort of get the credit for like bringing Ulysses to the world. But it was really Sylvia and Margaret and Jane before her who made sure that that happened. I'm glad you got their story on paper. Right? And, yeah. I mean, I'll never forget it. I That was completely informed what I knew about that, which is very little to begin with. Did you know more than 75% of Americans experience foot pain in their lifetime, but only 10% seek out a solution for that pain? Your feet don't have to hurt. So let me tell you about Superfeet. Superfeet has a wide range of insoles for every activity, every shoe, and every foot, from cushioned and flexible to firm and supportive. You can dial in your fit by taking their quick quiz online. Answer just a few short questions and Superfeet will recommend the best insole choice for you. Foot biomechanics may be complex, but solving foot pain should be simple. So when you add the signature orthotic shape of Superfeet insoles to your shoes, you give your feet comfort and support where they need it most, helping redistribute forces to reduce stress and strain on your entire body, not just your feet. When your feet feel good, so do you. Your foot health is an important part of your overall well-being. Visit superfeet.com and enter the promo code FTL at checkout for 15% off your first order plus free shipping. You guys, how important is sleep temperature? It's everything to me. And this is where Chili Pad by Sleep Me comes in. Its mission is to elevate the quality of human life through cool sleep. The Chili Pad bed cooling system is your new bedtime solution. It lets you customize your sleeping environment to your optimal temperature, ensuring you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. Chili Pad works with your existing mattress. It's a water-based mattress topper that continuously controls your bed temperature from 55 to 115 degrees. It's designed for one or two sleepers. So if your partner likes to sleep at a different temperature or you only need it for one side of the bed, it still works. I just put this on top of my existing mattress and voila. So whether you're dealing with night sweats or simply seeking a better night's rest, Chili Pad is here to transform your existing mattress into a sanctuary of cool, relief, and comfort. Visit www.sleep.me slash FTL to get your Chili Pad and save up to $315 with code FTL. This offer is exclusively available for the love listeners. 
only for a limited time. So order it today with free shipping and try it out for 30 days. You can return it for free if you don't like it with your sleep trial. So visit www.sleep, that's S-L-E-E-P, dot M-E slash F-T-L. Because every woman deserves to wake up feeling refreshed and ready to conquer the day ahead. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch's sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee, plus 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com code odyssey. Exclusions apply. See site for details. One more question about the book. Obviously, it just made a wonderful splash in the world. What's it been like since your book was released and what has the response felt like? Because of course, you know, what you have done with Courage is put out a novel with a lot of people's favorite people in it. Their favorite writers, their favorite city, their favorite idea around bookstores. Like you've taken some treasured data points and put it in the world. And so with that comes a lot of people's opinions and their experience of who you've written about, their experience. So I'd just love to hear what the response has been like. Well, amazingly, it's been overwhelmingly positive. I will just say, also say as a caveat, I am a writer who does not read all the Amazon and Goodread reviews because that would not be good for my mental health. So I'm sure that people have said things that I don't want to hear. But in general, it's been kind of amazing. You know, the book was an indie bookstore bestseller for more than a month when it first came out, which was like, I cried. Like, it, you know, because this meant that the independent bookstores of the United States were hand selling the books to their customers, saying, you know, if you love books and reading, like, you've got to read this book, right? And it's that like, was, it's praise from Caesar. Like, right? Uh huh. Yes. I, I mean, it was, I, it was such an honor. And, and then to get emails and Instagram posts and all of that from the act, the people who are actually reading the book, it's just kind of been, wonderful and overwhelming. Even people who have had like a constructive piece of criticism to offer always couch it like, I loved the book. You did such a great job of X, Y, and Z. But did you know this other? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Thank you for telling me and being so about it. Right. So, you know, it's just, it's been like amazing. And also moving back to something that you said at the beginning of our chat, because you talked about people are going to the store and, you know, and we can talk about the relationship between the current store and the original store. But my favorite Instagram posts are the ones where people take my book and put it in front of the current Shakespeare and company. Like take a picture. I just let, if you're listening and you have a post like that, tag me. That is my favorite thing. That's so fantastic. Do explain to us about where it was, where it is. Okay. The store. Yeah. So, and actually, I actually have a little walking tour on trip fiction. Ooh. Seen the current store and the original store location. Oh my gosh. Well, drop that in my book club. They will love to hear that. Yeah. 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 I'll dig up the, Uh the link. So as readers know, the original store had two locations. It had the one on the Rue de la Trend, but then the more famous location that it was at for 20 years on the yeah. Rue de la Trend. Right. Okay. So the current store 
is actually right on the Seine. If you stand in front of the store, you are looking at Notre Dame Cathedral. It's like amazing location. Now, that bookstore is not the original. The Sylvia did have to close her store in 1941 during the war, Second World War, and she never reopened it. The, the current store was opened in 1951 in that location by another American named George Whitman, who was a friend of Sylvia's, and Sylvia was a regular at his store. Originally, he called the store Le Mistral, and he renamed it Shakespeare and Company in 1964 on the 400th anniversary of Shakespeare's birth, but also it was after Sylvia had passed away. And if you go into the store... It's clear that the that the current Shakespeare and Company is in many ways an homage to the Sylvia's original store. They have some ephemera from the original store. They have pictures of Sylvia and George together. They make it very clear that it isn't the original store, but it's very connected to the original store. And George had a daughter who he named Sylvia, who runs the store today. And I've gotten to meet her. Whoa. Wow. I love that full circle moment. I know. It's like, it's total full circle. She's got two like, you know, toe-headed little boys. Like, like, it's really a lovely place. And, you know, Sylvia always wanted to open a cafe. And so this Shakespeare and Company has a fabulous cafe next door. And again, you can sort of sit and have your cafe creme and look at like with your book and like the Dom Cathedral. So the story continues. I love it. Oh, I'm so happy you said that. I love knowing that. Fantastic. You deserve everybody's praise and all the accolades and all the applause. It's just a delightful read. It really is. It's so, I was transported. I mean, I read it in like a two days. Uh, I just powered through it. And I was just there in my brain the whole time. I saw every street corner. I saw what they were wearing. I just saw it all. Like you just painted such a beautiful picture and I enjoyed it so much. Can you tell us two things? Number one, obviously writers are readers. So we always love to know like, what should we be reading? I want to hear your ex. Like either something you've read recently or... Old favorite, I don't, I don't care. Like, give okay. us a couple of recommendations. I've read some just absolutely amazing novels recently. I read Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow by Me Gabby. too, I just read it. Isn't it amazing? It took me a minute to get into it because it's outside of my normal genre. But that the writing just grabs you and pulls you right on in. Yep. I, I mean, it's about video game designers. Right. I do not play video games. Same. And right. I, I was totally sucked in by the human yeah. drama. Right? That's it's right. really it's fabulous. it's a character it's about the characters so yeah yeah exactly. yeah so I loved that I also loved the House of Eve by Sadiqa Johnson that's <sighs> was, that came out in the last few months and it's terrific so okay. I, I will say this I am a big audiobook listener so I do pretty much all of my pleasure reading when I'm reading with my eyeballs it's usually for work which doesn't mean it's not pleasurable but I'm reading like to blurb a book or to do research very slowly. So all of my, when I read books that are out in the world already, I'm listening through my Libro FM, independent. Yeah. Oh, I know. Yeah. So, so both of these are also, if you're an audiobook person, Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow and House of Eve are both amazing audiobooks. I'm trying to, an, another book that is a, like, I feel like a modern classic by now that I also loved, like it's worth all the hype is Midnight Library. By yeah. Matt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So fascinating. I've never read anything like it. 
Yeah, right. Exactly. I mean, there's a reason why it's just, it's, it's been, you know, so, so terrific. And I also, this is sort of a sideways answer to your question, but I've been enjoying the Daisy Jones and the Six show that came out because I also really loved that book when it came out. Oh yeah. My boyfriend can't quit talking about that show. He loves it. I'm like, did you read the book? He's like, no, I'm watching it on TV. I'm like, okay. If he listens to audiobooks, it's an amazing, it's actually better, I think, as an audiobook probably than a reading because it's a full cast recording. Like Jennifer Beals does the voice for Daisy Jones. Benjamin Bratt does the, the voice for the main, the male singer character. I don't remember. Anyway, it's terrific. Oh, that's great to hear. That's fun. Okay. Last. Can you tell us, I'm sure you are, what you're working on right now? You've got to be working on, you're, writers are always writing. Uh-huh. <laughs> yes, they are always writing. So my next book is coming out in September. <laughs> wow. Oh gosh. So if you're, if you want to, it's all on Instagram. My main social media is Instagram, mirror writer, and it's called all you have to do is call. It's set in the early 1970s in Chicago and it's about Ooh. underground women's health clinic before. Rome. Oh, woo, woo, woo. That took a no. hard turn. Yeah, wow. I had no idea when I got interested in this topic in 2018 that it would be published into the world it's getting published in today. So, oh, right. Oh, my yeah. gosh. So, oh, that's well, the next get it, be expected to be on a lot of talk shows on that one. <laughs> They're going to want to hear your thoughts. So that's the next book. And I am kind of looking around for another subject, but I also want to like, if I may put in a little, a little plug for something else, which is that I just recently launched my own Substack, which is like a, a newsletter blog. And I am serializing the original ending to the Paris bookseller there. Oh, actually oh, went, went through the end of the first, the second world war. And I cut those pages for a bunch of reasons, which I talk about on my newsletter. But if you if you just cannot bear for the Paris bookseller to end, there's more. <laughs> Interesting. Okay, I will grab that link from you and we will make sure that we send out the link to sign up for Substack to all of our people. That's great. I love that. We love behind the scenes. We love edited, deleted scenes. Like, yeah, fantastic. Yeah, with a historical fiction, you could just go on forever. I mean, you know, if you're not going to pull out a splice of life, golly, it'd be hard actually to find a stopping place because it's all interesting. Yes, 100%. Like, I think historical fiction writers have so much cutting room for a floor material. You wouldn't yeah. believe it. So. Yeah, I believe it. So thank you. Thank you for writing such a great book. We are so enjoying it in book club. And so I will make sure that everybody has everything to follow you on socials, to find your other work, to sign up for Substack. All of it will be a one-stop shop for you. Delighted to meet you so much. So it was wonderful to meet you too. Really. It was such an honor. Thanks, Carrie. 